Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. I want to begin a series on Nehemiah, book of Nehemiah, a series that uh, I'm, I'm calling Rebuilding the City of God. And today I'm, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1 in a sermon entitled, Not My Problem. Lord, bless this word, bless your word to our hearts, and plow us up and make us fruitful as you plant your seed within us. May it grow up and bear a hundredfold to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. A cartoon. Presbytery's Examinations Committee is testing three candidates, three ministerial candidates on the Trinity. And the first one answers, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The second one answers, Mother, Child, Womb. And the third one answers, Rock, Paper, Scissors. At which the chairperson says, I think we have a problem. The church in America has a problem. It's been sucked into a full-scale culture war. One side demands we embrace the shifting cultural norms of tolerance and justice in the name of Christ though it violates scripture and creed, to remain relevant to our modern society and attractive to our young. On the other side, the evangelicals believe we must remain faithful to scripture and to our reformed heritage to please God and to witness to biblical truth in a culture run amok. And the social convulsions wrench our churches apart. Case in point, known to many of you, 25 years ago, a survey of the Presbyterian Church USA uncovered a chasm between the traditional faith of the layman in the pews and the radical ideology pushed by seminaries and national staff. And the more the majority reaffirmed traditional beliefs and practice, the more a loud minority stirred the pot. And the constant infighting out on the fringe cost the denomination its conservative core. And they left in large numbers until the radicals were able to hijack the General Assembly, and it was a hijack, and force their agenda on the whole denomination. In only 10 years, in 10 years, it took 10 years, America's largest Presbyterian body was devastated, and the remnants now drift anchorless, 
far from its reformed roots. Same thing is playing out among the Episcopalians. This is nothing new to you, I'm sure. The Episcopalians, the Church of Christ, Lutherans, and now the Methodists. There are rumblings even among the Baptists, including Southern Baptists. As congregations splitter and denominations split, the disillusioned leave to go nowhere. They just poof, and we don't know what happens to them. The church in America is in a shamble. The walls pull down, the gates burn, the survivors pray to bandits and predators. Well, you say KPC left the PCUSA many years ago to join the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. So that, all of that doesn't concern us anymore, right? Um, it's not our problem. Except KPC is not just a local congregation. It's part of a national denomination, part of a family of Reformed and Presbyterian churches across this nation. It's part of the body of Christ around the world. What happens in another part of the country, what happens in another part of the body of Christ impacts us as well, whether we see it or not, feel it or not, from the higher spiritual plane, there's still ripples going through the church and ripples that are impacting KPC. <clears throat> when one part of the body suffers, what? The whole body suffers. We all have a problem. It's a crisis of biblical vision, of courage, and of personal responsibility. Now, churches can be wasted not just by theological disputes. Often the greater damage comes from interpersonal tensions that emerge whenever people gather into groups. Juan Carlos Ortiz used to say, you know, he had a church of 500 members. He said, you know what that means? We had 500 problems. And he paused a moment, he said, no, no, we had 550 problems because some of those problems would get together and create new ones. Whenever people get together, there's going to be friction. It's just the way people are. I mean, just look at KPC. Thumbnail history review that all of you, or most of you know, 
At its peak, this church had, depending how you count, maybe 1,400 members. You had to have several weekly worship services just to fit everybody in, right? And then 10 years ago, you had the, the failed City of Hope project. It took some of the wind out of your sails. Okay, that happens. Disappointed or angry, some members left. Others were only junkies drawn to the adrenaline of big projects who leave anyway as soon as the excitement's over. And so I want you to realize a crisis in a church, a crisis does not cause membership loss. A crisis does not cause membership loss. It only reveals, shall we say, a pre-existing condition. It reveals that there is an existing lack of personal commitment and responsibility to the church and to rebuild the church. Uh, but, you know, not my problem, they said. I'll just go somewhere else. And then a third of your members march off to Babylon. Well, despite the losses and the unhealed wounds, when Pastor Steve came to be your transitional pastor, KPC was holding steady at around 600, 650, something like that. And for those of you who are worried about Harrison, and because if I'm going to talk about his father, but we've talked about it, he knows what I'm going to be saying. And I think in large measure, he would probably agree with me that for the first year and a half, so I'm told, everybody loved him. So much so that the congregation petitioned Presbytery to do what it's not really allowed to do, which is to allow him to stay and become your next pastor without even having a pastoral search. And against its better judgment, Presbytery let you do it. And almost immediately, simmering conflicts surfaced. How could that happen? Well, I'll explain how it happens. One of the basic rules of transitional ministry, basic rule of what I do, is an interim can never, ever be the next installed pastor. You just can't do it. You don't do it. Now, our denomination, the EPC, at that time did not yet see the unique role of a transitional pastor. And they provided no training. They didn't have any kind of system for training new transitional pastors. And so 
Steve had no way of knowing what he was getting himself into when he went from being a transitional pastor, well, when he became a transitional pastor in the first place, and then when he went from being transitional to installed. You see, congregations always, or almost always, love their transitional pastors. I mean, he has all the qualifications of what they're looking for in a pastor. He breathes, he lives, He can, he's comfortable usually getting up in front of people and talking, and he has usually more or less two legs. And, you know, meets all, hits all the boxes. But they love their interim pastors, and they want them to stay forever. But it can never be, should never be, must never be. I'll tell you why. The interim pastor has the freedom to do and say what is needed for the health of the congregation, even if it's unpopular. You can do what needs to get done. Why? I have a freedom about it because I know I'm leaving. <laughs> I don't have to please people. Hopefully it will please them as they see a church responding and getting stronger and and all that, but they may not like what they hear at times. And I promise you there are people in the church, in some of the churches I've served, who are just praying for the opportunity to dance on my grave. Oh, you know, I hate to say it, that doesn't bother me either. So I've got this freedom because I know I'm not going to stay. I don't have to please people, and that also means I don't take anything personally. People fuss at me or complain at me. I don't take it personally because it's not really my problem. These are problems that were here before I got here. God willing, I'm going to help solve them so they won't continue to be here, but it's not my problem. Does that make sense? Because I want to help you all get where you need to be. The problem is, as soon as a transitional pastor becomes permanent, all of that changes. It all changes. The freedom is gone, and that criticism suddenly does become personal. You begin taking it personal, whether you want to or mean to or not. And whatever unresolved emotional residue exists toward the former pastor and believe me, there was obviously a lot of residue here at KPC. Well, all of that gets directed at the new pastor. Oh, I'm so glad we have a new pastor. <sighs> Hallelujah, we have a target. Yeah, every church, every church does it. Now, an interim pastor can hear all of this impassionately because it's not my problem. And I, if it has to be, I'll let them people get mad at me. I can absorb it, and then God willing, take it with me when, they go, when I go, so that the next pastor doesn't have to deal with it. That won't be, that'll be gone. But if I stay, can you imagine what happens? Suddenly it sticks to me. 
and the honeymoon is over even before the votes are counted. Constant agitation, constant crisis, it's the inevitable result. It's a group dynamic thing. It has nothing to do with a particular person or pastor. It just always happens when a transitional pastor makes the mistake of staying when he should be moving on. Does that make sense? That's how I do what I do and why I do what I do. There are not many of us who are willing to do that. That's probably a good thing for the church because I'm sure we're not normal. (laughs) But okay, if it helps you, then it's worth it. Then it's good. So what happened then? More people left. You know, the constant bickering and the tension that happens group dynamically, it, it just is inevitable. So more people leave. They left and they left and they left. Not my problem, they said. And off they marched to Babylon. KPC has maybe, we're guessing, because we got interrupted trying to reconstruct our church roles thanks to the coronavirus. But we have maybe around 300 now. And it didn't take a divisive theological controversy or subversive heresy. Just the usual attrition you find when leadership with the best of intentions, makes unwise decisions and great expectations meet routine disappointments. The challenge now is where the church falls apart. Will the people of God still accept the personal responsibility to rebuild the city of God. The walls broken down, the gates burned with fire. It's not the first time that the city of God has faced this problem. Journal of Nehemiah is all about rebuilding the city of God restoring it from warfare and plundering and generations of neglect. So let's look at Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11. Please turn to Nehemiah. You'll find it, you know, you go to Psalms, turn left. Okay. Just flip open to the middle and and then take a left turn. Go about a block. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Shislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, One of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped to the captivity, and about Jerusalem. 
And they replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I, sat, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned We've offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At the time, I was cupbearer to the king. The word of the Lord. Now, some historical context. Beset by internal rivalries and poor judgment and bad theology, the same stuff that wrecks congregations and denominations today, what, what an amazing thing that in, oh, 2,500 years, human nature has not significantly changed. deep sigh. But Judah, but with all that going on, Judah, you might just say Judah was a tethered goat waiting for the lion. Unsurprisingly then, Babylon came in, captured and sacked Jerusalem in 587 B.C., shipped the people east. Time passes. Oh, about 40 years later, Babylon 
uh, is absorbed by the Persians. And in 539, the Persians allowed the exiles to return to Israel, if they would. And not all went. Many of them stayed in Persia as merchants, bureaucrats, diplomats. More time passes. So now it's late November, 445 B.C. 140 years, 140 years after Jerusalem was destroyed, a full hundred years, or almost, well, within a couple of years, a hundred years after the first exiles returned to Israel. And Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer, that means he is the butler and personal bodyguard. The cupbearer would attend to the sovereign's needs, and he would, for example, test the wine or test the food to make sure it's not poisoned. So he was effectively a personal butler and bodyguard to Xerxes of Persia. And he is still in Susa, the capital of Persia, and he's, he's assuming, Nehemiah has been assuming that the Jews who did stay behind and were not deported have been steadily rebuilding Jerusalem to its former splendor during the last 140 years. Wrong. Nehemiah assumes that the returning exiles have been steadily rebuilding the city during the past 100 years. Wrong. When visitors arrive from Judea, Nehemiah gets an earful. The city of God is still in shambles. The walls breached, the gates ruined. And they tell him, the people live in great shame. He doesn't talk about great poverty or great need. They are in great shame. Shame. Why shame? Because the chosen covenant city of God is in ruins and they don't care. No vision, no courage, no personal responsibility. Not my problem, they say. Now we know that the returning exiles arrived with high hopes, but were shocked to find no infrastructure, no jobs, 
no church. The temple does eventually get rebuilt, but no frills, just plain, no frills at all. The economy's in a free fall, families face foreclosure, you make ends meet. There's not much left over for building projects. And so, preoccupied with themselves and with survival, getting by, nobody seems to care if God's city languishes. I've got my hands full. I've got enough to worry about. That's not my problem. Now, somehow, Nehemiah missed all of that. A man of maturity, deep faith, who never bothered to check the facts and get involved. And when the truth finally hits him in the face, he's stunned. He weeps, he fasts, he's driven to his knees. And he prays, and his prayer is very touching. First, he affirms the majesty and the covenant faithfulness of God, especially his righteousness and his steadfast love. All great works of renewal begin with the God who wills and plans it for the sake of his unwavering commitment to the covenant with his people. It always starts with God because God is faithful. He is a God of righteousness. That means God has standards. And he is a God of steadfast love. That means God has forgiveness when we recognize how we have failed his standards. Now, it's not about wallowing in guilt feelings. Rather, what this is about is seeing how the course that you are on is leading you away from the goal. Oops, I thought I was going that way. Oh my goodness, it's taking me that way instead. And you confess, and you repent, and that means a course correction. That's, it's very simple. You just correct your course. There's not a lot about wallowing in guilt feelings. It's about making a course correction to follow the direction that God wants you to go. You chart a new course for God's coordinates. So Nehemiah confesses the sin of the people, 
specifically himself, his family, and his nation. Well, wait a minute, you say, Nehemiah didn't cause the destruction of Jerusalem. He wasn't alive when it happened. He didn't actively participate in the sin that led to the judgment and the downfall of the nation. Except for so long, he didn't want to know. He didn't try to find out. It wasn't on his radar. He did not care. It wasn't his problem. And now, Nehemiah suddenly realizes and recognizes his own complicity, his personal complicity in the crisis of the city of God. If only it's the crisis of the complicity of complacency. The complicity of complacency. Now finally, at the end of his prayer, Nehemiah recalls God's promise to restore his people if they repent and return. Repentance and returning are always only a prelude to promise. They're a prelude to promise. God expects you then not to sit there in misery, but rather, once guilt is recognized and confessed, to receive his forgiveness, and then you move forward into what he's calling you to do. You get your course correction. Okay, Lord, let's go do it. You open the doors. You make it happen. You see, grace, properly understood, received, experienced, grace leads to action. Grace leads to action. So, almost as an afterthought, at the end of his prayer, Nehemiah asks for success in how he is now planning to get involved. Now, people make all kinds of excuses for not getting involved. If I, was, if I had lots of time and was even more brash than I am, we could hand out three-by-five cards and everybody could write down their favorite excuse. Without signing it, of course. But write down your favorite excuse and then I probably get to publish it in a book and something like that. No, I'm not going to do that. But we make all kinds of excuses for not getting involved. And I find it kind of boils down to four. Now, if you have a really, really creative excuse, you're welcome to tell me at another time when no one can overhear us, okay? Um, but my guess is it boils down to four. And the interesting thing is we don't hear a single one of them necessarily from Nehemiah because Nehemiah shows us the path than of disciplined faith. First, I didn't know. 
I didn't know. You know, for a long time, Nehemiah didn't know. He assumed the rebuilding effort was progressing smoothly, maybe even completed. You know, no pleas, he was getting no pleas for money in the mail. He saw no vacant-eyed children on television. But once he does find out the truth, from his, this time from his brother and his brother's uh, acquaintances, he will not bury his head in the sand and pretend he still knows nothing. He will not dodge the facts. He wants to know everything. The second excuse, it's not my problem. Nehemiah, on the other hand, takes this very personally. He doesn't have to uh, care about Jerusalem. I mean, he'd never been there. Otherwise, he probably never would have been there, never would have gone there. He had a good life where he was. He had nothing to do with the sorry state of his homeland. He didn't have to take it upon himself to personally fix the problem. But these were his people, his church, his God, and the honor of his God. And that made it personal. Third, there's the excuse, it's not my fault. The tragedy existed before Nehemiah was born. His personal sins were not why the city fell to Babylon 150 years before. But Nehemiah does recognize his own complacency and disinterest were part of the problem. He didn't make it that way. But his lack of vision and courage his personal disengagement contributed to keeping it that way. That was his sin before God and the sin of everyone else who sat around saying, tisk tisk, but wouldn't do anything. The fourth excuse is there's nothing I can do you know, I'm just one person. There's nothing I can do. You see, despair is not an option for God's people. Not if they have a shred of faith. We've got a big God. You don't have to be big. God's big enough to make up the difference, okay? One person and God You've got this. Despondency, paralysis, hand-wringing, they're only masks for self-pity. That's, I consider that the indulgent deadly sin of our generation, the eighth deadly sin of self-pity. Jer no, Nehemiah affirms the power and the faithfulness of God. That's the beginning of his prayer. He affirms the bigness of God, that God can do it. And God claims that 
in his promise that if his people repent and return, he will restore them. It begins with God and the bigness of God. God can turn everything around, so there is something that Nehemiah, little Nehemiah, can do. He can confess and redress. Confess and redress. He admits his complicity in the problem, prayerfully lays plans to get directly, personally involved. You see, rebuilding the city of God, it is his problem. It is his fault. It is his responsibility. And it is his destiny. Now, the church is the temple of God. You may not see it that way, but God, from his perspective, looks at the church, and this is the temple of God not made with hands. It is the city of God where God dwells among his people. It is the heavenly Jerusalem waiting for its ultimate redemption and glorification. Just to mention, you know, when you read the end of the book of Revelation and you see that great city descending from heaven made of precious stones, that is the church. So just be aware, when you die, you go to church. One day the church will be glorified and we'll see it as, as magnificent as Jesus Christ sees it, the bride that was precious enough for him to lay down his life. Until then, it's a bunch of headstrong people who jostle constantly and struggle to put up with each other. Do I hear an amen? As a human institution, the only thing we as the church have going for us is the sheer unmerited grace of God. And that's enough. The church across this nation needs to be restored and renewed. The city of God has been burned with the fires of heresy and ideological dissension. It's racked by internal tensions of group conflict. This congregation, this outpost of the city of God needs to be rebuilt. Now, God has a calling and a covenant with his church, his people. It was purchased by Christ at great price through the suffering of the cross, and he will not let it go. This congregation also shares a unique covenant and calling He's given you the task to, the, to preach the gospel to those who have never heard, 
to lead to Christ those who have never believed, to pray the powerless into the infilling empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to train the young in faith in finding and using their gifts to the glory of God, and then to release them to serve into the greater church at large. That's your calling, and that's the covenant He's made with you. So you see, it is our problem. We cannot excuse ourselves saying we didn't know. Oh, it doesn't apply to us. Well, it's not our fault. Uh, There's nothing we can do. This is the church that Jesus Christ gave his life to redeem. Look around. These are the people Jesus Christ gave his life to redeem, including the ones over there on the other side of the sanctuary you don't really like. No, every church has some. But that's all right. There are some who look that way at you. That's just the way it is. Remember, when we get to heaven, everybody is going to be surprised you made it. You see, this is our problem. It's our responsibility. It's our opportunity. If this congregation is going to turn around and be built up again in spirit and in numbers, we have to ask questions. We have to get informed. We have to take it to heart, find ways to serve. I'll be talking about more Uh, More about that in the next few weeks as we get on into Nehemiah. But we need, like Nehemiah, to pray passionately, even weep and fast, confess our own personal complicity in what has happened, even if it's only the complicity of complacency. And then, confident in God's help, You and I look for ways to get involved in fixing the problems. We don't have any problems that can't be fixed because we have a God who fixes problems. And there is no problem so great that God can't fix it. So confess and redress, yes, amen. Pray, confess, redress. Destiny awaits. And remember this as Nehemiah did. God is great and awesome. God is faithful to his covenant with his church. God keeps 
his steadfast love toward you and me as we love him, revere his name, and honor his word. And God has promised that if we return to him, he will gather once more our outcasts, even though they be under the farthest skies, and bring them back to this place. I only pray we won't drag our heels for another 140 years. Let's pray. Lord, we yield ourselves to you. Here we are, the raw material for rebuilding your church starting here. We may not look like much, but Lord, you are able to see in each one a warrior, a builder, a lover. We have all the people and the skills that we need to build us back up into the church you want it to be to fulfill the commission you have given us to do. And now, Lord, we yield our wills to you that you'll give us a real bad case of the want-tos. We confess that so often we've complained instead of getting involved. We've closed our eyes, we're turned away. We confess that so many of us have just left because things looked more promising, more peaceful, had better programs, more youth or children involved than this church might. And yet you will hold us responsible and accountable if we abandon the place that you've put us and the people you've put around us and the ministry you've called us to. Lord, prepare our hearts. Make us ready. Ready for what you want to do here. And then, Lord, once you break us and mold us, send your spirit to empower us. And once again, to your glory, do great things in these walls. We ask this trusting, trusting in the name of of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Commander, our hope and our future. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.